Thank you, Mayo Quartet, for that very appropriate song and uh, ministry to us. I want you to tuck that song away in your mind and heart. I will be referring to it in a little bit in my message this morning. My heart's been blessed tremendously through pastor's expositional preaching through the Gospel of John. Remember a few weeks ago, he emphasized that the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth, full of truth, embodies all truth. Well, this morning, Brother Jack uh, Herb read for us in our call to worship John 1, and I'm sure verse 14 is very familiar to you, but I'd like to begin with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. I'd like to emphasize this morning that Christ is full of grace. Eight weeks ago, I saw the powerful illustration of God's grace in the life of a man that I only knew for 61 days. John and Carol English invited Richard and Joan Stickler to our Hunter's Fellowship on January the 29th. Richard came because, not because my son-in-law was the speaker talking about turkeys, but Richard, I learned, really knew something about turkey hunting. My son-in-law is pretty good, but... Richard Stickler shot 99 turkeys in his life and was hoping to shoot his 100th turkey during this month. I met uh, Joan and Richard afterwards. I didn't tell my son-in-law right away. This guy was in the uh, group there and listening and checking you out. And he thought uh, you knew what you were doing. But I remember on February the 13th, I received a call from John English uh, from Florida. And he said, I hate to tell you this, but Richard Stickler is in the hospital. Would you be willing to look him up? And I said I would. And that week, every day, I went to the hospital and built a neat friendship with Richard. Joan would come in a little bit later, but we had some precious time together getting to know his interests, a tremendous golfer. He was able to shoot his own age, 79. And uh, I learned also that he was really a motorcycle enthusiast because he was the East Coast champion of motorcycle racing. A tremendous, gifted man, worked for some 20, almost 30 years at Lebanon Valley Offset. And maybe you knew Richard Stickler over the years. He certainly knew Frank and uh, Gene Hunsicker quite well. I went in to visit uh, Richard that entire week. I know that Friday was such a difficult day because that day Dr. Perez came in to talk with Joan and Richard. He had a PET scan, uh, I think Monday or Tuesday of the following week, and he was told that he had cancer throughout every part of his body. He hadn't been to a doctor for 25 years healthy, rugged kind of guy, hardly sick a day in his life. And yet he was told that he 
had this cancer and no chemo, no radiation would change that circumstance. I went to the home many, many times. I used to think that Joan was tired of coming to the door to welcoming me, but she always was very gracious. And I shared many, many scriptures with Richard. He allowed me to be a real close friend, just knowing him maybe two weeks. I shared many scriptures about, first of all, the grace of God, but I had to also help him understand that he was a sinner. And we looked at Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, uh, your Lord. And uh, there was an opening and yet um, somewhat of an indifference. And I pursued, I know that I asked many of you to pray for his salvation and also for his physical condition. And I say this to the glory of God, that on March the 22nd, Richard acknowledged, he repented of his sin, and I'll talk about that in a few moments, but he repented of his sinfulness, acknowledged, confessed his sin, and asked Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior. What a day that was. I remember coming home, telling my wife I was so excited to see what God's grace had done in this, this man's life. John and I visited, John and Carol, and I visited a number of times in the home where Richard uh, uh, affirmed and attested the fact that he was trusting Christ alone for his salvation. Richard died on April the 1st. Joan had asked me a few days before if I would have the funeral on April the 7th. I agreed to do that. But they were waiting for their daughter, Cindy, to come home from Germany. Cindy and her husband, uh, Peter, he is a three-star general in the German Air Force. A beautiful couple. I so enjoyed Cindy and Peter because they had a German accent. And my, I just enjoyed talking with them. And so on Monday, April the 5th, I gathered with the family to prepare for this memorial service. And I was sharing, we were rejoicing in the fact that Richard is in the Lord's presence. I couldn't help but think of this as the quartet was singing. Face to face, Richard was in the Lord's presence, absent from that body, but with the Lord and probably learning many, many things that he did not know and rejoicing in God's grace to his life. As we shared many, many things about Richard and I gathered information, I'll never forget this. Cindy sat on my left and she said, Pastor, how can you say my father is in the Lord's presence and forgiven of his sin when he never went to church, didn't read his Bible, he did nothing to deserve this. How can you tell me he is with the Lord? And for the next hour, we sat together and looked at many scriptures and I shared with her. The portion of scripture I used many times to just help Richard understand his sinfulness 
but the grace of God who, who would forgive his sinfulness and even his failures and all that he forfeited and deprived. I shared with Cindy, you see, God is a God of grace. And he gave his only begotten son who was willing to bear the penalty and punishment of our sinfulness in his own sinless body. And by grace alone we are saved. And the scripture I read from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That faith is a gift from God. And Cindy, God gave to your dad the ability to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for him. And by works, no man can ever be saved. Your dad did not deserve this salvation. Your dad did nothing to earn it. Your dad did not do anything somehow to gain God's approval. But Jesus Christ did it all for your dad. And your dad believed that he was a sinner and repented of his sin and asked Christ to be his Lord and Savior. She just shook her head. And then I took her to the portion of Scripture I'd like you to turn to with me this morning, to Luke chapter 23. To Luke chapter 23. And I'd like to read to you verses 32 to 43. And I trust that you have a Bible that you can follow as I read. I am reading from the New International Version this morning. And the setting is that Jesus Christ, even as Isaiah the prophet said, Jesus would be numbered with transgressors. In that wonderful passage of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, when he would be crucified, he would be crucified between two criminals. That was predicted in Isaiah. Long before Isaiah even knew anything about the whole concept of crucifixion. Beginning at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. 
Today, you will be with me in paradise. I want you to notice in this passage the criminal's prior life. He was a thief. Actually, because he was crucified by the Roman government, he evidently was guilty of armed robbery and a repeat performance. Probably an incorrigible kind of man. He just took advantage of people. Broke God's law, thou shalt not steal. And he had no time for God. All he did was exploit people and try to steal from them. And he was guilty. And he was justly condemned to die on that cross. We find that uh, his punishment was deserved. I won't take you to the passage, but there are two passages in Mark 15 and Matthew 27 where it says that both of these criminals hurled insults at Jesus Christ. And in the beginning of the crucifixion of these men, both men just railed upon Christ and derided him. But then God, by his spirit, began to work in one of the criminals. I can't explain it other than God's grace was beginning to be active in this man's heart and life. And look at verse 40 and 41 again with me. The one criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he begins to understand that he is guilty. He deserves what he is getting. He is receiving just treatment for his behavior and his wrongdoing and sin. And he says to this other man, don't you even fear God? Evidently, there was residual somewhere in his heart. Maybe this man somehow heard something about God's grace. But this man was beginning to mouth what God was doing in his heart. And he rebuked the other criminal. I want you to notice that this man was, uh, whatever generated or provoked this man to say these things. Well, I think the only conclusion I can make as I look at this passage of Scripture, number one, he did hear the Lord Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second thing I want you to notice, he heard many of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, hurling insults at him. He saved others. Why don't you save yourself? And then this inscription was written by Pilate that was above his, uh, our Lord's cross. This is the king of the Jews. I believe the Holy Spirit used these three things that he heard and saw that day. And he began to understand that Jesus could pray to his father. He had a father, a father that would be merciful and would forgive the sin of these people that were putting Jesus Christ to death. He knew that sin could be forgiven. And he heard, he saved others, and probably he may have heard of some people that Jesus did save and transform their lives. He believed Jesus was a king with authority and power to actually give 
life eternal. Where did all of this come from? I believe the only explanation is the Holy Spirit was giving insight and understanding to this man, even as he is crucified on this cross. He knew there was another throne, God's throne, besides Caesar's throne. He understood that Jesus had a right to appeal to his father for the forgiveness of sin and the giving of that life to any person who believed. He believed a dying man could give him life. No one else could do this. And he recognized that he himself could do nothing to earn this. He couldn't go to church. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't give money. He couldn't do anything because he's dying. And in a few hours, he is going to be dead on that cross. He could do nothing to change his circumstance. But he believed that God, through in Jesus Christ, would be gracious to him and could forgive him. And so we see here that this man, uh, in his own heart, is beginning to sense his own guilt and sinfulness, and he repents because... God doesn't really offer this gift without repentance. And that repentance is being expressed by the acknowledging of his own sinfulness and that Christ is innocent. He is, he is perfectly, uh, he has done nothing wrong. And therefore, he repents of his sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'll never forget the day when Richard Stickler Weeping shared with me his repentance of his sinfulness. He repented of a number of things and shared them with me, but I uh, had his permission to share this as well as Joan's permission. Joan is with us this morning. Thank you for the way you have welcomed Joan. You're praying for her. I know you are. This has been a very difficult experience for her. Uh, you were married Fifty-nine years. That is difficult. But I'll never forget when Richard, with tears flowing down his cheeks, he was so thin, so weak, just unable to get any decent rest. He said, Pastor, I want to tell you something. When I was eight years of age, I went to a little church out in Fredericksburg. It was a small church where the children were taught in the Sunday school up front. The parents and grandparents were in the back of the church. There was a boy there uh, behind me in my Sunday school class who just irritated me. Take the bulletin, scratch up the back of his head, take pencils, poke them in his ear. He'd take his Bible and uh, hit him on the head and his shoulders. and He just aggravated uh, Richard, and Richard told his Sunday school teacher about it. And uh, the teacher really didn't make much of a response. And so one Sunday, when he continued to do this, he jumped over the pew and decked this kid. And at that time, his parents and grandparents come running up to the front of the church, just literally screaming at Richard and said, Richard, you get out of this church and never come back again. And Richard never went back to any church. And that day, he wept almost uncontrollably. He said, I am so ashamed of my behavior. 
I so regret what I did. I deprived my family of many, many spiritual opportunities. I was stubborn, a German stubborn guy that just was angry and hurt and bitter and I was not going to go to any church. I many times think about this. Oh, I would imagine if those that rebuked him and told him never to come back to church, if they knew what had happened. But God in his grace brought Richard to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what this criminal, his request was. A very simple one. Very humbly, he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. He believed that Jesus Christ was a king. And he had his kingdom and he would rule in that kingdom. But he also recognized that Jesus was one who could forgive. One who could transform. One who could change his life. One who could redeem him and set him free from his own sinfulness. And so he asked the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And immediately Jesus, if he could turn his head, probably casually turned a bit so that he could direct it to this criminal. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. In just a few hours, as we're both going to die, I'm going to paradise. I'm going to my father's kingdom. He, of course, lived in a glorified body for about uh, 50 days, 40 days. But he did say, today you will have eternal life. Immediately. You will be with me. Notice the intimacy. I don't even know the criminal's name. We're not even told his name. I told anything about his background, his ancestry, his conditions, what brought him into the mess that he was in. Nothing. But Jesus saw this man's true repentance and faith and said, Today you have eternal life. You will be with me in paradise. That place of bliss. We say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You will be with me and with my Father in paradise. It will be a place where there will be no more sorrow, pain, death, or sin. And notice he said, there's no probationary period. No purgatory. No testing of you whether you're really worthy of it. No soul sleep. None of these things. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What a wonderful promise. That's the promise that Christ makes to all of us that have put our faith and trust in the Lord. We will one day be absent from that body that we lived in and we're going to be present with the Lord and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And as the men sang this morning face to face, I believe on April the 1st, when Richard entered the Lord's presence, he saw the Lord Jesus who redeemed him and set him free from his sin. He deserved none of that. He earned none of that. 
But he could say, oh, Lord, you are my God, my Savior. You are the one that set me apart through your precious blood that was shed there on the cross of Calvary. Oh, what he gained. I I wish I had a little more time, but the clock is running by. I'm showing you what this man gained when he entered the Lord's presence. And that's what Richard received and enjoyed, the Lord's presence. I wish that... I wish that Richard would have known more scriptures. I wish he would have enjoyed many things with his family. But I know in the Lord's presence, he's rejoicing, singing, praising God, honoring the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he did for him on March the 22nd. What did this criminal forfeit? He forfeited a lot of things. I don't believe this criminal ever really enjoyed a sunset or a sunrise. He had no idea that God made all of these beautiful things. One thing Richard really demonstrated and talked about greatly, whenever he would be hunting, he just enjoyed God's creation. He'd bring all kinds of wild, little wildflowers he'd find under the leaves. He'd bring them home for Joan just spoke of the grandeur of God's creation, and he enjoyed it so much. But this criminal had no joy of ever worshiping in spirit and in truth. You know what the joy is when you come to the Lord's house and you sing God's praises and you hear his word and you hear it preached so, so clearly and succinctly and powerfully. This criminal never enjoyed a worship service. Knew nothing about reading the Holy Scriptures in depth and understanding, comprehending truth and rejoicing even as we pick up our Bibles and read them. This man never probably held a portion of God's Word in his hand. Never knew the joy of seeing his children walk in the truth. I have six grandchildren, obviously two girls and their husbands. I praise God that each of them know Jesus Christ and are walking and serving the Lord. I don't think there's any greater joy, as John the Apostle said in 3 John verse 4. I have no greater joy than to see my children and grandchildren walking in the truth. This criminal never had that joy. This criminal never had the joy of following the Lord in believer's baptism. I really enjoy hearing the testimonies of our young people, children, sharing many of them when I was four or five. My mother led me to the Lord. Just transfer this concept of grace to your children. Your children didn't earn that standing with Christ. Your children didn't deserve that at the age of four or five? What did they do to earn any of God's favor? God was pleased by his grace through promoting by his Holy Spirit, through your teaching, praying with your children, uh, the word of God, bringing to your children repentance and faith. They're gifts. God gives these gifts. And your children are a real illustration every time they stand and give their testimony of God's powerful and marvelous grace. But this criminal never had the joy of hearing his children confess Jesus Christ publicly through believer's baptism.
never knew the experience of fellowship and body life, the love of God's people for each other. He never knew something about knowing people were praying for him. Never knew an answer to prayer. Never knew how to pray, except when he was there on the cross. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Never had the joy of sharing his own faith with another person. I don't think there's any greater joy than to share the gospel, your love for Christ, what Christ can do in that person's life, and to see that person respond and open their heart to the Lord. This man never had that privilege. Richard was deprived of a lot of those things, too. And I'm sure that he would be the first one to say, I regret that so deeply. He deprived his wife of going to church with her and sitting next to her. Deprived his children of many, many opportunities to see a godly father open the word of God, participate in worship. What a lot of things. I'm not going to play in that. But I know that because of simple childlike faith, childlike faith like your children express in Jesus Christ, Richard, in childlike faith, received the Lord Jesus. I just want to keep one thing in mind. This must have meant something tremendous to the Lord Jesus. You see, in the scriptures, it tells us that uh, in Isaiah chapter 53, that he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Most of the disciples had fled that scene, the crucifixion, except John and the women. Our Lord's mother is one among them. But Jesus, Isaiah the prophet said, he will see the childbirth, the pain that is involved in bringing forth the child. And mothers, you know the joy. Oh, that pain must be tremendous. I can't imagine it. But when that child is born, to see that beautiful little being that's made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made with little eyelashes and eyebrows and fingernails, perfect in every way. What a joy it must be for a mother to see that child. And when Jesus saw this first convert, who was the first to receive the benefit of his death on that cross, confess him as Lord and Savior, and that he could promise him that he would be in his kingdom and be with him in eternity. What a joy it must have been for the Lord Jesus to see the travail of his soul. And it says he will be satisfied. Oh, what a delight it must have been to the Lord Jesus to hear this man cry out in faith. We also hear from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What joy that must have been to the Lord Jesus to sense God, his Father, by the Holy Spirit at work in the heart of this man and that he would be redeemed. Luke chapter 15 says there's great joy in heaven, great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. 
Oh, I'll tell you, that day when Richard opened his heart to the Lord, there was joy to me, but I'm sure it was even greater joy to the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed him. I'm sure it was great joy to his dear wife to hear that sound that, that her husband acknowledged Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I know some people are very suspicious of 11th hour conversions or deathbed decisions. I become anxious sometimes if people are just doing this to escape or say the right things to placate their family or whatever the reason might be. But one of the things I want you to notice, the Lord Jesus never demised 11th hour conversions. The Lord Jesus knew all the hearts of men. And if this man did not have pure motives, was trying to just say the right words just to get something out of Jesus, uh, no, Jesus would never have been deceived. Jesus recognized in this man the sincerity of his heart, true repentance, and true faith, or he would have never offered that gift that he promised to this man. I'm thankful the Lord is the judge. I don't have to make those judgments and decisions. I could wish people wouldn't wait until the 11th hour or a few hours before they die. But I believe the scriptures indicate that God is pleased when anyone places their faith and trust in him. I shared with Cindy uh, Scheltzik. Her name is Scheltzik. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I said to Cindy, this is not the only, and I referred to this. I didn't go into all the details I have this morning with the dying thief. But I said, Cindy and Peter, and Peter was so attentive. This guy has several doctorates, several master's degrees, a brilliant man. And as I'm sharing and teaching these scriptures to the family, he is shaking his head, yes, yes. Peter, do you believe these things? And I emphasize it's not by works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, yeah, I believe, I believe. And I said to Cindy, you know, your dad and the dying thief are not the only ones that came to faith by grace, but the Apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus. And I very went into detail about Saul of Tarsus because she probably didn't know a whole lot about him. But I said 14 of the books of the New Testament were written by Paul. But when he was Saul of Tarsus, he was a religious man, a very religious man. He, he knew the Word of God, the Old Testament, forwards and backwards. He was a very learned and knowledgeable man. And he was a man that actually said of himself after he was born again, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. He actually murdered Christians. He hated Christ. He hated God's people. And I said there was a day when this man was knocked off of his horse and Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, confronted Saul of Tarsus. And by grace, save this man in a dramatic way. He certainly didn't deserve what Christ did for him. But Christ forgave him of his sin. And he's the one that wrote, for by grace are you saved through faith. I also told her my own personal testimony because tomorrow uh, is the day 60 years ago that the grace of God touched my life 
and I was born again, May 17, 1950. I thank God for his grace. I just marvel in God's grace that he saved me, that he chose me. I grew up in a neighborhood of about 12 guys, and everyone was over six foot. I hated basketball because they all played keep away from me. But um, most of them were Roman Catholic. I went to church almost all the time. I used to spend some weeks every day in church. But I did not know Jesus Christ. And on May 17th, on a Monday night, May 17th, 1950, I recognized my utter sinfulness, my helplessness, that I was under God's wrath and condemnation. Even though I had godly parents, I lived in church, as I said. I heard more sermons probably in that period of time till I was 17 than maybe most people ever hear in a lifetime. But I was not saved. And by God's grace, he chose to save If you're saved here this morning, would you just reflect on your conversion? Think about God's grace in your life that he chose to draw you to himself. No man seeks God. No, you didn't try to find God. God sought you and drew you to himself. And probably everyone in this room this morning it comes with a different story how we all came to know the Lord. But one thing's come. It was by God's grace that you were saved. You understood your sinfulness. And you understood that Christ died for your sin. I trust that you'll just rejoice in that. But you know, the Word of God teaches us that there's also sustaining grace. And some of you may be going through some very difficult times, maybe even questioning, doubting your salvation, your relationship with the Lord. There are times when we become very casual, very careless in our spiritual lives, and sometimes we question our relationship to the Lord, and rightly so, because you know believers don't live that way. But I want to tell you that God's grace will sustain you. Philippians 1.6 was my life verse. He that hath begun a good work in you will perfect it or bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And it was God who began the work in your life and brought you to salvation. And he's the one that's going to sustain you and keep you and hold on to you. Oh, sometimes we, we just feel as if, oh, wow, can't handle any more of this. I also want to emphasize that God's word teaches us of the sufficiency of God's grace. I was with Marge Malin on Monday. We were looking at that great passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know the background of that. Uh, the Apostle Paul was lifted up into the third heaven to receive many of the mysteries and revelations that were given to him that he expounds in the Word of God. And God says, uh, so you don't become cocky and arrogant I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that this thorn would be taken from him. And then Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. And Marge is depending upon that sufficiency of God's grace. She knows the Lord. She knows of his saving grace. She knows the Lord's going to keep her his sustaining grace. 
but she's learning that God's grace is sufficient to go through the time of chemo, radiation. Ron Spies has learned the same. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is the same today as it was for the thief on the cross, for Saul of Tarsus, for me and for you. Perhaps there's one here this morning who has never, never experienced God's grace. It's nothing magical. It simply means that God will be gracious to you. He will bear the penalty of your sinfulness in his own body. And he did that when he died on the cross. And he said, if you will acknowledge me as your Lord and Savior, I'll give you the ability to repent of your sin. I'll give you an ability to understand my word. I'll be faithful to you and I'll give you the gift of eternal life. And perhaps some of you this morning might be here hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus, maybe for the first time. Maybe you've heard it many times like I did, but there was no response from your heart. I want you to know that our God is a God of grace. He forgives sin. Jesus died for that sin. And he arose from the dead to give you eternal life. I trust that you would not leave the house of the Lord this morning without knowing God's grace, experiencing that forgiveness and the hope and assurance of everlasting life. I want to thank you for praying for Richard and for Joan. I want to thank you. There were many Wednesday nights when I came and asked you to pray for Richard's healing. God did heal him. Gave him a new body. He's with the Lord. But I want to thank you for praying for his salvation. We have requests like this on Wednesday night. I want to, I hope this will bring assurance to you that God hears and answers those prayers. I want to thank Mr. and Mrs. English for inviting Joan and Richard to our Hunter's Fellowship. I know our committee really appreciates the outreach that we are able to have. And I thank you, uh, Carol and John, for inviting Joan and Richard. I'm sure, Joan, you're happy that they invited you that Friday night. And I want to thank you also for the privilege of serving the Lord among you for almost now 15 years. And I thank you for calling me to this work of just helping Pastor Reed, ministering to saved and unsaved alike. I'm just thankful that I have the privilege of being available to minister to people's needs. And I just encourage you, as God's people, invite people to the house of the Lord. Offer the grace of God to everyone that you know and meet. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be hesitant. May the Lord give you a a boldness, a a godly, Christ-like boldness to share the grace of God with others. And may the Lord use you. Thank you, our Father, for your grace in Richard's life, in my life, and in the lives of the majority of the congregation here this morning. Thank you for the way you transformed the life of Saul of Tarsus. 
and how you made this man a great servant, a mouthpiece for you. And I thank you, Lord God, for Joan. I pray that you just surround her with your presence, with your comfort and peace. And thank you, Lord, for your people that welcome her and encourage her and love her. Thank you for the Englishes and others that many times invite friends to come in. May you be pleased to continue to work. Thank you for Pastor Reed and Pastor Brandt. Give them a precious Lord's Day. And I just thank you for your people, for the opportunity of serving you here in the life of this church. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.